Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. The curriculum says we're Unit 19, Session 1, which doesn't mean a lot to, to you probably, but it's called Jesus, the Last Adam. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this opportunity we have today. Help us to appreciate your word to us and the incredible privilege we have together today of coming together and learning together and growing together and just entering into the blessing that you have for us as a church family. Help us, Lord, individually today that we might allow you to search our hearts and that you would give us understanding and insight. Uh, you would illumine our, our minds and our hearts to receive from you today what you have for us. As individuals and as a church family, as a body, we just uh, pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that you would give us ears to hear. And we would thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the New Testament begins with a genealogy. If you go to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, genealogy. It starts, this is the genealogy of Jesus. We're not going there today, but you, you can... You, oh, by the way, when we send out the reading tracks for people to read, you're going to be really, you're going to be upset the next few weeks because we're going to tell you to read the same things over and over again. Um, that's intentional, okay? Um, there are times, and you might not be, I, I don't, you might not be confused by this, but there are times when we would do well to read a passage more than once, okay? So these early chapters, we're, we're, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, and read them together over a few times. Um, And watch for those references that I mentioned to you. But it, the Bible, the New Testament begins with a genealogy. Uh, and of course, the genealogy in um, Matthew um, 1, uh, Luke 3. That's where one of the readings for today was Luke chapter 3. And there is a genealogy today there as well. They're not this, exactly the same. There are some differences. One of the differences is uh, pointed out in the curriculum. Now, if you're doing the devotional studies in the curriculum, you will see this. They point this out in there. That Matthew wrote his, his uh, account, his, what we call the Gospel of Matthew, to primarily a Jewish audience. Whereas Luke was writing for a much larger audience, including non-Jews. Because Luke himself was not a Jew, which is really fascinating. Uh, but anyways, we won't have time to go there. But um, that makes, makes a difference because in, in Matthew's genealogy, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew is intent on making the connection between Jesus and Abraham and David. Because you remember Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, right? And David was their great king. And I would suggest to you that the, 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 uh, the, in the storyline of the Old Testament, David and Solomon are the high point of the Old Testament. Everything's downhill from there until, <laughs> until 
today when you come into the New Testament. And you were about to, and over the next number of, of months, we're, we're, we're into the high point of all the revelation because we're talking about the one who was promised, who was promised, who was promised, who was promised. Is he ever going to come? Because this is a mess down here. Jesus Christ is not only the high point of all revelation, he is the uh, the one who ties it all together. He's the one that makes it all connect. And so Matthew is intent on connecting Jesus with Abraham and, and David primarily. But Luke goes all the way back to Adam. He connects Jesus to Adam. And he has his reasons, his theological reasons for doing that. And God has his reason, reasons for inspiring Luke to do that. And he wants us to know what those reasons are. And I think that it's, uh, it's uh, uh, so important. Look, uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Do we have that uh, scripture? Can we put Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 up? Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God's revelation is progressive. There is a progression in the revelation of Scripture that culminates in, in Jesus. Paul talks about how many things were like mysteries in the Old Testament that are revealed in the New Testament. And when we refer to Jesus as the living word, or when you read in John chapter 1 about the, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, referring to Jesus, that Jesus reveals God to us. He, Jesus is the son, eternal Son of God and we can look at Jesus on the page of Scripture and, and know what God is like. And, and we can draw those conclusions from His life and from His words. God wants to reveal Himself to us in His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the purpose of Scripture is that you and I might come to know Jesus. So the New Testament begins with a genealogy, and we're not going to actually read Luke 3 today. Um, you can read it there. You probably already have. Um, where Luke ties... Uh, connects Christ with Adam. Um, we're going to go to Romans chapter 5 because that's where Paul explains that connection. Okay, so Paul, Luke, Luke gives us the genealogy which connects Jesus to Adam. Paul, later in his letter to the Romans, explains in very explicit terms how Jesus and Adam were related. Okay? <laughs> Clear as mud. Romans chapter 5. 
verse 12. We'll read right through to the end of the chapter. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread on all men, or to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. That's an interesting statement right there, isn't it? It's like, oh, yeah, I might be a sinner, but I'm not a sinner like that person. (laughs) Yeah, whatever. Sin is sin, right? Um, Who was the type? Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. Verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of God of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, sin, or sorry, uh, death, reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, so that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The word man and the name Adam in Hebrew are the same word. You already knew that, right? I think you probably knew that. It's important. Right? He's our father, father of us all. We all, every single person who has ever been born on this planet, are born into the, the world as descendants of the first man. And of course, when God sent his son Jesus Christ to be born into the world, he changed it up, right? Um, we're going to be looking a little bit at that. The word sin that's used throughout these passages here in the New Testament literally means to miss the mark. It's actually an archery metaphor. How many of you have ever shot an arrow from a bow? I know I know the, a lot of the young people have because I watched them a few years ago. But yeah, most of us have done that, right? Were you, did, you, did you hit what you're aiming at? Most of the time? When we talk about sin and hitting the mark, most of the time doesn't count. We all miss the mark because the mark is a consistent, perfect shot every time. How many of you understand that God is 
perfect. That in him there is absolutely no imperfections at all. How many of you know that all his ways are perfect? That his character is perfect? God never misses the mark. But when we read scripture, starting with our very first forefather and mother, we over and over and over again come up short of the mark. The word transgress or transgression here, that's the other uh, Greek word used throughout this passage we read, is similar but different. The word tra to, uh, transgression or tra transgress has the idea of, of crossing a line that we're not supposed to cross. So when you are a trespasser or a transgressor, the words uh, trespass was the word I was actually referring to. When you, when we have, we are tres. Uh, Bible talks about our trespasses. Um, is it Isaiah fifty-three? There's lots of scriptures talk about tre trespassing, but if you trespass on somebody's property, you've crossed a boundary line, right? And uh, you can put a sign up that says "No trespassing." Don't cross this line. And so. Uh, that's the other word that's used here for for uh, for sin. So it's kind of like a little bit like uh, holiness and righteousness, if you think about it. Holiness is uh, is involved in us staying away from things we shouldn't be involved in, whereas righteousness is more about doing right things, right? Living right, doing right, and coming short. In either of those ways, is coming up short. What the Bible calls sin. Um, and, uh, yeah, we've inherited it. The passage we just read teaches us that we have inherited uh, what we sometimes refer to as a sin nature. That means that we don't have to try to sin. There's lots of things we have to try to do. Sinning is not one of those things. We have to try not to sin. And that doesn't always go well. Um, hopefully, we're learning how to resist the temptation. Uh, that's coming up in a few weeks' time as well. Christ in the wilderness, resisting the devil. But we don't have to try to sin. It comes naturally to us. Not only are we Sinners, because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. Does all this talk about sin make you uncomfortable? Because it makes the world very uncomfortable. <laughs> it really does. I don't think any of us like talking about sin. Do we? It's a fact, but... If we like talking about sin, wouldn't that be a little bit like kind of like that probably wouldn't be a good thing. Like it'd be like feeling good about sin, and that's not a good thing. So sin is not something we feel good about, not something we like to think about, but it's a reality or a fact that the Bible addresses and says, "This is our situation." It goes all the way back to Adam. It says there, just as sin came into the world through one man, 
and death through sin. This is um, verses 12 again through 14. So death spread to all men because all sinned. So we are, we sin because, uh, we're, we, we, we are sinners because we sin, and we sin because we're sinners. Both are true. For sin indeed was in the world, verse 13, before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So you notice in verse 12, when he starts there, Paul starts, uh, therefore, by the way, this is an aside, but when you're reading Paul's writings, uh, it's sometimes you, you can really get lost in Paul's writings because Paul was one of these guys, he would start to write something and then he would, he would start um, uh, qualifying and, and he would get another thought and he would run with that for a while and sometimes he doesn't even finish a thought. And uh, this is one of those cases where he, 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 he's got so much that he wants to share with us. And, uh, and uh, anyways, but verse 12, just as. So here he is saying, uh, there's, uh, it's similar, just as, similar uh, Christ to Adam, Adam to Christ, the similarities, just as there's something the same about Adam and Jesus. But then later on, he will say this. Uh, but, verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass. And this is where he gets into the differences. So it's kind of like saying, um, Jesus was a man. That's important. But he was also unlike man. And the way that Jesus was unlike every other person born on this planet was that he did not sin. And he was, at the same time, divine as human. And that's how he was able to live a perfect life a sinless life. So the difference, as he goes on here, is the difference between sin and grace, the difference as between guilt and forgiveness, the difference between life, uh, between death and, and life, the difference between Adam and Jesus. In Adam... All die, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In Christ, all will be made alive. Those are some of the, the differences. Verses 15 through 17, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And you'll see that word abounded come up over and over again. And th this is, again, uh, part of the difference, and as Paul outlines here, the difference is that that his grace is greater than our sin. That's a, a very important distinction that Paul's making here, that the grace of Jesus Christ 
is an abounding grace. It's like the, uh, the glass overflowing. More than sufficient. More than enough. It's not like we got two things here and they just kind of balance each other things out, each other out. No, it's more like this: the grace of God comes in like a flood, and it washes away all of our sin because of the greatness of God in Jesus and His mission to save us. Um, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 where the, the Bible records the fall of man uh, in the garden, remember that? One of the promises that God made there, and this we call this the, the proto-evangel, the, the first gospel, uh, the first indication in scripture that God is going to send a special one. Born of the woman... <laughs> Genesis chapter 3, you know, we're, we're, we're right after the fall, right? The first part of the Genesis chapter 3 is, is the recording of the fall into sin. And in Genesis chapter 3, right there, we talked about this a year and a half ago, if you remember. Right there, God makes a promise. And you can read it there. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, personification, he shall bruise your head. And he's talking here to who? God's talking here to who? Satan, that's right. If you, read, if you go back and read it, he's talking to the, to the devil who tempted uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, first part of chapter 3. Uh, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Seed of the woman. Uh, offspring, seed. Literally, seed. King James, version, seed of the woman. Um, reference to Jesus. How do we know it's a reference to Jesus? Seems a little, just a little bit vague there. Well, if you have been with us on our journey through the Bible, you will hopefully remember that this idea of a promised seed doesn't stop here. It carries right through. Remember what God called Abraham. He said, I will, I will increase your, your offspring and uh, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and through you, through your seed, all of the world will be blessed. And it carries on from there. Remember David, when we were studying about David and God promised David that he would have a son and that his son would rule forever on his throne. Of course, we think, well, I, you know, Solomon was David's son, but the reference really was a reference to Christ. Again, how do we know that? Well, look, look at this passage, Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Again, this is Paul. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, so uh, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. But the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, literally his seed. And then Paul says this, it does not say to his offsprings or seeds, referring to many, but referring to one who is Christ. 
He is the promised offspring. He is the promised son. He is the, the child who would be born, who would be the savior of the world. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. He's the promised one. These references to uh, you know, Genesis 3.15, all the way back there, looking forward to the one who would come. Then look at this, Romans chapter 16, verse 20. Look at this, look at this verse. This is Romans chapter 16, verse 20. The last chapter in the book of Romans, I'll read it for you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, you can't tell me that's not a reference to Genesis 3.15. It absolutely is. You can check it out. Back to Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to a condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's uh, obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, Paul's using some big words there. He's using words like justification and righteous or righteousness and so on. And I know that that sometimes can throw people a little bit. But they're important terms. The word justification is a, is a very important biblical term. Uh, Paul uses it strategically, he uses it intentionally, and he uses it so that you and I would understand that uh, what's happening here in this great drama as the Son of God steps out of heaven and comes here to lay down his life for us so that we could be saved. How does, God, how does Jesus dying for us save us? Well, Paul says it justifies us. He says it and, to, and to, ju to be justified means to be declared just or to be declared innocent. Are we innocent? Are we innocent? Is there anybody here innocent? No. Because the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. Romans 3, 23, I think it is. Um, or 20, yeah, somewhere there. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us are innocent. But, but, and this is the glory of the gospel, Jesus Christ died for us, took our place, represented us, and then paid the price for us so that we can have the benefits of his righteous life. Uh, the older theologians call this uh, imputation. To have, uh, when Jesus was on the cross, he was innocent. Completely innocent. Lived a perfect life. And yet, the Bible says that God put our sin on him. God imputed our sin to Christ. But that's only half the story, right? Because the Bible turns, turns around and, and then says, and for all of those who will trust in him, who join themselves to him, who come to him, who receive him, who accept him, who become part of his family, related by faith with him, 
God imputes his righteousness to us. It's called the great exchange. So all of, uh, of our unrighteousness, he takes. And all of his righteousness, he gives to us, to you and I. And Paul, uh, the apostle, uh, you know, the writings of Paul are, are such a huge part of the New Testament and such a huge part of Paul's writings involves this whole idea of this great exchange that, uh, that takes place when you give your heart to Christ, when you put your trust in Christ, when you receive Christ and you become joined with him, you, when you become his. It's a matter of identity. It's a matter of relationship and it's a matter of, uh, of, of identity. Um, there's an old, old hymn. Uh, most of you have never heard of it because you're all so young and beautiful. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. It's not just Paul, though. I mean, Paul says, uh, look, look at the 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is Paul. He says, for, the sa- for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're talking about this idea of imputation, you know, where God takes uh, the sin of the world and puts it on Jesus, and then when we give our hearts to Christ, that he takes all of, of uh, the righteousness of Jesus and puts it on us. And you say, is that, like, is, that seems, sounds like a fanciful kind of idea. Like, is that really, really what happened? Is that, is that actual, or is that just a, a really wild, wonderful idea that somebody thought up? The Bible teaches exactly that, and it's not just Paul. Uh, Peter, the apostle, um, 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25 says, He, speaking of Jesus, himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. When Jesus died on that cross, he was dying for our sins. He didn't have any sins to die for. It's the very foundation of Christian faith and experience as a believer in Jesus, as somebody who who would call themselves a Christian, the realization, the recognition, the admission that Jesus died for me. He paid the price for me. He took my sins on himself. Where does forgiveness come from? The world has this, <laughs> this idea, and sometimes we get it too, that forgiveness is just like a, a magic trick or something. You just make stuff disappear. Like God just said, oh, you know what? I'm just going to pretend you're not a sinner anymore. I'm just going to pretend that, that you're a really good person. And it just doesn't work that way. One of the things that Paul sets out so clearly in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, is is that this is how. When you understand how Jesus died, how he lived and how he died, how he came for us uh, from glory, lived a perfect life, and then laid his life down for us, to understand that is to understand this. How God, who is absolutely, completely just, and never does anything that's unjust, 
could justify the likes of us? How could, he, how could God actually even begin to save us? How could God? Surely even God can't fix this mess. I mean, like, if you really understand how, how screwed up the world is because of sin and our own share in that, we can't just, you can't just get, you know, pass that off somebody else and say it's somebody else's problem, it's somebody else's fault. I love that story about G.K. Chesterton when he was, when the, uh, you've probably heard this before, but hear it again. They were writing in, right, to the newspaper. They uh, encouraged, this is, this is a generation ago, or maybe two now, but uh, in, in, in London, the, the papers had this thing where people invited people to write in and say, what's, what do you think's wrong with the world? What's really wrong? What's wrong with this world? It's obviously messed up. But what's really wrong with the world? And they had people writing in all these great big philosophical statements and arguments. And G.K. Chesterton, who was just kind of a wit, right? And he just wrote in two words. I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. I'm what's wrong with the world. If you understand that, then you understand what it means to be a sinner before God. If you don't own that, then I would suggest to you you haven't really repented of your sins because you haven't understood what it means to be a sinner. We own it all. And if you want to argue the fact, the point with God, the hymn writer would say, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died, that he died for me. But if you don't acknowledge and we don't acknowledge our sin, we're, it's like we're saying Jesus died for nothing. We didn't need him to die. That's the problem with our world today is they are people we don't know. We need Jesus. We think we can handle it. Every generation, we just there's just, there's just this, this pride and this arrogance. And I know there's a point of belief here. I know that at some point you've got to actually believe that Jesus was who he said he was and did what he said he did. But it's been my experience that the other real, the bigger, much bigger problem that the world has with faith is this willingness to admit how screwed up we are. We want to blame somebody else, or we want to we want to minimize our condition. It's not really that bad. I mean, really, you know, do, do we, we don't surely we don't deserve, you know, death and hell. We don't understand. We don't understand sin, and therefore we don't understand grace. We look at the cross of Jesus Christ and see him hanging there in agony, suffering, and it offends us. It offends our sense of personal self-worth or something. Because we think, surely, to goodness, that's not what I deserve. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible teaches. If we believe what the Bible says, that's the doctrine of salvation that is in Christ. You'll have to forgive me for wandering here, but because uh, I've completely left my notes and I'm lost, so give me give me a few seconds. I'll see. It's not worth the time anyway, so I'm just going to try to uh, 
just uh, close close up the uh, our time here. Um, yeah, now I am really lost. It doesn't work that way, Wayne. Um, it wasn't just Paul. It wasn't just Peter. Um, well, Paul, Paul really, really, he uh, he uh, explains it out so so well. Um, you know, we're in the book of Romans. Uh, Romans eight is one of uh, my favorite passages. The last half of Romans 8, all of Romans 8, all of Romans. Um, you know, the what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. It is God who justifies, Romans 8, 33. It is God who justifies. Who is it, who is to condemn Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long, we are guarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any else, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus conquered sin for us. All of the failure we've been reading about for the last year and a half, over and over and over again. I understand we're anxious to get into the New Testament. It's like, can we get into the New Testament already? I understand that feeling because that's exactly how you should feel when you study the Old Testament. That's exactly how you should feel. You should feel exhausted. You should feel like, is there any hope? And if you feel that way studying the Old Testament, you're ready to, to get into the New Testament and really see that, that, that that's exactly what Jesus is for us. He is our hope, our hope. Christ conquered sin, and by conquering sin, he conquered death and hell too. John, uh, John the Apostle, John in Revelation chapter 1, said he's the vision of Christ, and he sees Jesus standing there, and Jesus speaks to him. The resurrected Jesus speaks to John, and he says, um, to him, it says that John fell at his uh, uh, fell at, at his feet as though dead. Uh, but he, Jesus, laid his right hand on me, saying, "Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades, which is another word for hell." Jesus Christ conquered sin and death and hell and he did it for us he did it for you 
He did it for me. He is not only our hope, he is our only hope. And we have to stop, and I thank you for your patience this morning. When we'd like to stand. The New Testament, the New Covenant, I think it was last week we celebrated the Lord's Table where Jesus says to his disciples, this is the New Covenant in my blood which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. The book of Hebrews talks all about how the blood of bulls and goats could never pay for sin. How they only pictured the one who would pay for sin. And that's Jesus. It's all about him. He is our rescuer. He's the last Adam. And all of those who are in him and are related to him by faith that becomes our new identity and our hope and our righteousness and our joy and our peace. And I hope, I hope that that's where you're at this morning. I hope as we're coming into the New Testament as a church family in our, in our, in our journey, I hope that it's not, it's not just something that you're a part of. I hope it's a part of you. I hope that this isn't just words on a page. I hope that you're not just learning things about him. I hope that you're coming, sincerely coming to know Jesus. That you've asked him to forgive you for your sin. Understanding and owning it for what it is. And claiming that promise that's for every one of us. Jesus said this. He said, he who comes to me, I will turn no one away. Think about that. No one. No one. No matter what you've done, no matter how dark you might feel your life is, your heart is. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for this tremendous group of people. I pray that you would give us, bless us with uh, enlightened hearts and minds from your word that, uh, that we might understand your word, that we might receive from you what you have for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence here today, and we thank you that you are our life, our hope, our forgiveness, our joy, and our peace. Lord, I pray that you would grant us that we might not just think about these things in some kind of cognitive sense, but that our hearts would be yours. That we, you would grant us a gift of faith and repentance that we might trust in you and receive you 
as Lord and Savior. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, you've never asked him to forgive your sins, I implore you on, on Jesus' behalf. All who come to me, he said, I will not turn anyone away. Will you come to him by faith? Will you just say, yes, Lord Jesus, I thank you for dying for me. Please forgive my sin. Please take me and make me yours. Help me to live my life for you, to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.